nuclear. Australia is the nation that never quite got there in terms of developing a nuclear power industry. We've been blessed with abundant raw materials, including energy sources such as coal, sun, wind, gas and uranium. A federal election will be held in 2019 and energy and climate will be a voter issue. Additionally, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act is due for formal review this year. This is the Act which contains Clause 140A, the ban against the most powerful low-carbon energy technology. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. Welcome back to part two of Going Fishing's interview with Dane Eckerman. We are starting this immediately where we left off from the last episode. I hope you enjoy. Fair Dinkum Power has been popularised <laughs> by Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor. Angus Taylor. Has the word coal become as politically troublesome as nuclear? Yeah, yeah. At the moment, yes. Uh, but it's funny. You know, we we're talking about perceptions and that sort of stuff. <laughs> If you put a politician on a public stage and say, do you support nuclear? I can guarantee every time they'd say no or they'd find a weasel way to say no. But if you grab a politician and you take them off the stage, off the side of the stage and say, what do you think about nuclear? A lot of them go, I don't really mind it, but it's politically unfavorable to come out and say you support it. Because of the fear of nuclear is still pervasive and present, what happens is political parties weaponize it to gain votes. We saw it in 2007 with the Kevin 07 election. So when Kevin Rudd was elected Prime Minister of Australia. It, that election in 2006, um, if people remember, John Howard did the, I can't remember what the acronym is, but it's the UMPNA review, which is oh. basically they looked in nuclear power and they got Ziggy's with, Towski to lead that and that was a good view it looked at nuclear and it recommended we should remove the prohibitions way out what the Australian Labor Party did was they weaponized that and said we're going to put reactors where are you going to develop this nuclear industry which electorates is going to have a nuclear reactor in it and they weaponized it and it, it worked to a degree and that's the problem it's what happened here with the Royal Commission and the citizens jury is that when it came to the point for a political party to use it to gain a political advantage, it was used. The whole issue just died when that happened. Like I was saying before, there's good policy. You add a layer of politics and you end up with whatever's left. So this whole fair dinkum power, I have a feeling, and this is anecdotal, when people hear that and then they say the renewable energy supporters take the mickey out of it, satirise it and co-opt it, People look at it and go, it's a jingoistic term. It's a simplification of a very complex and serious issue. And people look at it and go, I don't think you're taking this as seriously as you should. Because calling it fair dinkum power, people just go, hey, that's like an Australian saying that I don't hear said a lot in public. It's one of those kind of things like everyone drinks Foster's, but we don't. Yeah, I hear um, it sometimes, but you're right. It's not yeah, as popular as... It's, it's 100% as popular. is one I hear come out uh, a fair yeah. bit, actually. Oh, 100%, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And and people that go, you're using an old school Australian slang for a very serious and complex issue where people are actually suffering because of the electricity bills and they look at that and they go, they just roll their eyes and they go, why the hell are we? And then you have another political party come in and attack it then you have another one attack it and say, no, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right. And it's like watching, seriously, if anyone's been to a childcare and you've watched four-year-olds argue, you just go, yeah, I'm out of this. I'm just going to step away from this and let them go at it because everyone's got ideas but it just it feels like the seriousness of the situation when people kind of condense it down to a three-word term. And I'll just point out the whole three-word term thing is actually something that's used in PR is you've got to bring things into rules of three. Every political saying that's kind of stuck is always a three-word term. Build the wall, drain the swamp. Exactly. You know, stop the boats. Like it's yeah. all these three-word terms and or it's in groups of three. So at the moment, yes, nuclear does have that fallback position where it's opposed. It is, it can be politically troublesome. So what needs to happen in Australia, and it's, we're working on this and we'll see how far we get with it, is that the Australian Labor Party have to support it. For sure. The Liberal Party have to not attack them on it because yeah. the Liberal Party in Australia, which is for those overseas, is like our right faction political party, is they traditionally support nuclear, like we saw here in South Australia, they have no qualms in using it if they need to, to gain political advantage. Because it was uh, the it was Jay Weatherall who was a Labor Party who commissioned that report or started that report, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. He was the one that initiated the Royal Commission. And the thing is that people in Australian political parties, there's factions. And these factions are, the Labor Party is traditionally left wing. And in that party there are left and right factions so there's parts that are more centrist than some of those quite left and in the labor party it's always traditionally been the left wing of the party that has opposed it and the right wing is favorable what was really surprising and interesting about the royal commission here in south australia was jay weatherall the former premier he was from the left of the party oh wow so he he came from a part of the party that doesn't support it there's actually it came out in the media during the time that he actually wrote a poem when he was in high school against nuclear power so to come from that background and initiate this royal commission and then run with it they were still going to run with it after that failed second citizens jury but then when the liberal party pulled the rug out and said we're not going to give bipartisan support the whole thing failed yeah and they, there's reasons from both parties on why and why not, and that's fine. But that's what happens in Australia. You've done the, you've been reading the chapters of Keith Eldler's book. Oh, they're all available now. They're all done. Yeah, exactly. So, in in that book, he talks about missed opportunities. So there's a copy of that here in Adelaide at Flinders University's library, and that book talks about all these missed opportunities politics has gotten in the way and so like south australia could have an uranium enrichment industry there was contracts ready to be signed in 1983 and when the new labor government bob Hawke's government came in and instituted the three mines policy stating there can only be three uranium mines operating in australia at the time which then was olympic dam ranger in northern territory and narbalek in northern territory 
the South Australian enrichment project needed Beverline Honeymoon to be operational as well. So that three months policy killed the project. That was a project that was fully costed, business plan, British nuclear fuels is ready to go. They're going to build centrifuges, which were brand new at the time, and build them here in South Australia. It was going to provide 2,000 jobs to the northern suburbs. It was going to value add about $2 billion in today's money on top of the uranium that was going to be exported. And it would have been a really high tech, as what they call now, advanced manufacturing industry. But we didn't quite get there. Jervis Bay Nuclear Power Plant, they dug the footings but we didn't quite get there. There are companies willing to invest and there are companies willing to do it. It's just the political situation, which then I suppose feeds into the whole prohibitions we have here too. Absolutely. Electricity prices are likely to be an election issue this year, though I suspect it is not an issue that can be solved in a single term of government. Care to comment? <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose with electricity prices in Australia, there's a couple of uh, uh, key things that people need. So what the ACCC and the AER and all those guys found out was basically in Australia, there's a tightening supply because of coal withdrawals. There is high fuel costs in terms of gas, which if anyone wants to know how broken the gas market is in Australia at the moment, we have pipelines that run north-south up the eastern side of Australia. We have conventional gas in the Cooper Basin and we have a lot of unconventional gas, coal seam gas in Queensland. And it's all connected by pipelines north to south so you can get gas from Queensland to Melbourne. It is cheaper to buy a gas cargo on the international market, LNG, ship it from Queensland down to Victoria, so build an LNG import terminal in Victoria than it is to pipe that gas from the fields in Queensland to Moomba, then down to Victoria. That's insane. So existing, already sunk cost gas pipeline infrastructure, it is cheaper to buy an LNG cargo out of Gladstone and send it down to Victoria on a ship than it is to put it on an existing pipeline network. That's how broken the gas market is at the moment in Australia, that people are actually considering building LNG import facilities in the south of the country because it's more expensive to do it on the existing spot market in Australia and infrastructure. It takes $2 a gigajoule to ship it from Queensland to Victoria. And if the spot market's hovering around 10, that's $12 a gigajoule gas when you can buy it on the international market for, what is it, four or five, six, something like that. Well, um, so it's not just a little bit more expensive, it's a it's lot a, more expensive. It's a lot more expensive, and that's how broken the market is here, and they're trying to fix it. <laughs> um, but when you look at this stuff, basically it should be, you know, existing infrastructure should always be cheaper, but it's not. You know, the other thing that comes in is network costs. We're talking about building a new interconnector from South Australia to New South Wales to help augment all the new renewables and stuff that's being built across the NEM. And those network costs are only going to get bigger when we have to build more and more infrastructure. And there is a process that is done. Uh, I'm trying to remember, is the regulate the AER, the, no, it's the AER, Australian Energy Regulator. It's called the Resources, no, Resource Investment Transmission Test, RITT, something like that. And um, so many acronyms and all this stuff. <laughs> but 
It's the RITT, and basically it's a test that says if you're going to build this, so in Australia, new network infrastructure, when it's built, the cost of that is distributed across the users of that infrastructure. So for new trans, so for new, when I was at SACOM, we were talking about upgrading the transmission backbone on the Air Peninsula here in South Australia to help resource projects in that area get up because the, inf the infrastructure there is nearing capacity so it needs to be upgraded. When they have to do the test for that, they have to then spread the cost of that over all the users on the Air Peninsula. And so everyone gets a certain cent per kilowatt hour adjustment to their bills. That's a network cost in your retail bill. If we're going to build this New South Wales interconnector and when you look at AMO's integrated system plan where they look about talk about renewable energy zones, there's a lot of new transmission infrastructure there. So there's going to be a thing where we're going to talk about network costs where if we're building, upgrading, say, a 132 kilovolt line to a 275 or a 550, that's going to have to be distributed across all the users of that. That's how it works here. And I've heard people about fast tracking interconnector development because we need it to help us improve system security, that sort of stuff. If we're going to start talking about fast tracking a cost-benefit analysis, we could end up like we did, what was it, a decade or two ago with the gold-plated network assets we had here where people were building these new, new transmission lines and we didn't really need them and it was costing consumers to pay for that. That's something that feeds into these higher prices that we're going to have to keep an eye on. And the other one, and this is something that those in the energy market who deal with contracts and trading of electricity understand is if your generation is variable or it's volatile in price, you have you buy, when you build your contract, you add into it hedges. So you basically hedge yourself from exposure to volatility and all that sort of stuff. Those hedges are traditionally produced by firm generation, so there's firm base load. And if you're having coal-fired power plant withdrawals and gas plants that aren't operating as frequently as they were previously because they're operating in a load-follow mode, that liquidity in that market reduces. So there's a concentration in there, and that then exposes people who have to buy electricity to volatile prices and all that sort of stuff. So while you may get you know really cheap prices because when wind and solar are producing, you're going to have to go and balance that with when it's not with other kind of electricity contracts and can get quite expensive. And that's what we saw in South Australia. Like a lot of commercial and industrial users were finding that these hedges in the South Australian market were disappearing because all the power plant was 540 megawatts and that just disappeared. It was two months notice and it just disappeared. All the the market, the, the contracts and, and the, the products that that power plant could provide to the market just vanished. And it made it very, very difficult to purchase electricity in Australia at an affordable rate. Electricity prices are become an issue this year and one party, the Liberal Party, who's in government at the moment, or the coalition, they they're coming out with their big stick policy and their snowy hydro 2.0. Big sticks basically threatening retailers if they gain prices. Difficult to do when a lot of your uh, generation is uh, is now privatised. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it's well, it is regulated by the AER and and they take care of it. But 
people are going to be aware of market concentration because that's something that the ACCC found out. There was there's there's concentration in the market, particularly here in South Australia, with a couple of big energy retailers. So they could game not they're not gaming the market. The ACCC didn't find any of that, but it gives them market power, so they can set the price effectively. The ACCC found no wrongdoing on that part at all. Some people say there are, but you know the jury's out on that. The market is behaving like it is because of how it's set up. It's just behaving within its framework. What has to be discussed is, is there a way we can change that framework without being prescriptive on what has to happen? So when government tries to intervene in things, sometimes if you directly intervene, you may cause unintended consequences. Whereas if you kind of redraw the boundaries, then everyone can operate on the field all right, but it's just a different boundary they have to work within. So that's another policy thing that should be preferred is prescriptive policies. They should only be used sparingly because you can have unintended consequences because effectively you're pulling a lever. You fix the problem and create three more. Exactly. Anyone that does computer programming knows you do a debugging and you come up with a problem and you go, okay, I'll fix that problem. And then you do debug and four more pop up and you just go, oh, so when we're talking about energy policy, it's got to fit those three criteria we talked about before, affordability, reliability, security, and low carbon. It should be technology neutral, and it also should be non-prescriptive. Like, it shouldn't say you can only build wind, solar, and hydro in Australia. Like, that's just counter to good government policy. Um, and, you know, the OECD talks a lot about this, you know, talking about, you know, prescriptive and non-prescriptive policies and governments, and they lean towards the non-prescriptive side. So you became Bright New World's general manager mid-last year. Can you, can you tell us about this? Some people might not know this, that Ben and I, years and years ago, we were, we were talking about environmental organisations and, and organisations that are pro-nuclear and that sort of stuff and whatnot, and we talked about it, and Ben was like, there's not an organization that suits me anymore. And, and I and I was talking about how there's not an environmental organization out there that is, I wouldn't say f- friendly is the wrong word to use, but it's like to businesses and companies and all that sort of stuff is not combative towards them. I'll put it that way. That is open to going in and talking to them and working with them rather than saying, you're evil, you need to go. Because that doesn't work. And as I've talked before, you know, we got to work together, otherwise it's not going to work. Using aggressive tactics is, while it may work in the short term, in the long term it's just going to backfire badly. So we were talking about that years and years ago and Ben established Bright New World. I gave him some guidance and that. Last year I finished up my role at SACOM and in between jobs and Ben comes along and says, hey, look, i got to go and do other stuff now, but would you like to manage Bright New World would you like to take over and I was happy to do that it was fantastic we always had the idea that if Bright New World got bigger I'd come on board anyway so he offered me the role and I spoke to the board and they were happy and so you know I took it on and came on board and I looked at it and Ben has established a fantastic organization it had a great reputation it had good branding and had everything that's there and um, basically my role has just been to tighten everything up look at what we do, work out can we redefine this and and a lot of what our members will find out is that we are. We're going to present a a refreshed face of Bright New World. It's going to be the same organisation as it's always been but we're just going to 
tighten it up and refocus it and it's going to come out bigger and stronger in 2019 and uh, it's been fantastic to do it. So, yeah. Excellent. 60 Minutes ran a story called Going Nuclear in October last year that featured Ben prominently. How did this come about? <laughs> so, contrary to what I've seen said... Yeah, I, I've seen I refuse some, to believe it. I, I've seen some great theories about packers and stuff like that. and It's funny, sometimes people come out with some of the most interesting theories about how we get stuff done and all that sort of stuff. And some days it's like, it's the same thing I worked at SACOM. People are like, oh, you can like, you know, of course they're going to do that because you told them to, right, right, right. It's like, I wish I had that power to walk into <laughs> the office and say, look, mate, we want you to come with this position. This is why you're going to do it. And they go, okay, they, it doesn't work. Like I, There was one minister in particular that I worked with and if we ever walked into his office for a meeting and said, we want this, this way, you're going to do it, he would have told us to F off quite bluntly <laughs> and get out. So... Effectively, they were looking at doing a story on nuclear and they spoke to some people and because of Ben's profile, someone suggested, hey, you should talk to this guy. This guy's a great story. He was anti-nuclear. He grew up as an environmentalist. He still is an environmentalist, but he changed his view on nuclear when he looked at it. And they thought, well, that's a great, that's a great story. It is a good story. It's like how someone comes out and says, I was wrong. It's, it should be something that I reckon we should celebrate more. Like when politicians came out and say, I got that wrong, this is what we're doing to fix it, and this is what we're going to do better, I think that should be applauded rather than going, oh, you're an idiot. That's something can, I think society should kind of shift their view on. So they did that, and so they basically contacted us out of the blue and said, hey, look, we want to do this story on nuclear. Ben has a good story. We spoke to the producers, and they said, that's great. This is when I just started Bright New World and we we're talking about it and I said to Ben, I said, hey, you know, you've been to Fukushima before and you guys want to go to Japan and, you know, you're going to do the usual thing where they see the plant off in the distance and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, you visited there. You obviously know people on site still and can we get 60 minutes inside? And, you know, we reached out and said, hey, look, they're going to do a story and, they were a bit wary because they, they've had news crews there that have just, you know, taken everything out of context. But to their credit, the 60 Minutes crew, the producers, the Tom and all those guys, they were fantastic, level-headed. They're open to discussing things. They're good journalists. They come with an open mind. We got them inside. And they, are, they were, they are, the first Australian media news crew to get inside a reactor. So everyone saw that. It was a bit rushed because TEPCO, understandably, is very, very conservative on the radiation exposure. And so everything had to be rushed. It takes time. You know, a lot of people don't know and don't see it is it takes time to set up lighting, cameras, positionings, have your questions ready to go and that sort of stuff. So they had to rush it. So that's why it did seem very hurried when they got in there. It wasn't because they were afraid or anything. It's just because they just didn't have the time to set up. So everything had to be rushed. And yeah, they got inside. They spoke to Ben. They had a safe cast Ngaigi Nano thing. You'll see Tom hold it up and to the camera on the airplane. We have that now. So it's a good tool to kind of visualize radiation exposure. A lot of people will probably roll their eyes, but it was literally out of the blue. They... They wanted to do a story. Someone mentioned 
Ben's a good guy to talk to. Then they contacted us and said, hey, we'd like to do the story. And we're like, fantastic, let's do it. And you guys were um, able to get them inside the uh, the reactor hall there, which, well, yeah. I, they were certainly thrilled about that because I remember on the ads, I was saying, oh, well, you know, we're the first crew to, from Australia to be able to get in there. So they were, yeah, exactly. they were happy yeah. with that bit of... Um, oh, exactly. And, you know, yeah, you know, and then they, they went to Canada. They went to Ontario and spoke to Bruce Power and about nuclear power there. And they even went and spoke to Geraldine Thomas in Imperial College London. And because it's like people, it's disappointing that people do this. It's that, you know, the whole shill thing. You know, Geraldine is the world expert. She was anti-nuclear when she went to Chernobyl because she wanted to prove that there was significant damage. And she found the opposite. Like there was impacts, but it wasn't as apocalyptic as what everyone thought it was going to be. And it tempered her view on nuclear. We did get the usual backlash from it, and that was fine. But you know what? Everyone that I've spoken to that saw that 60 Minutes episode, because I was like blasting on social media, saying, go watch this, we're kind of be on 60 Minutes, that sort of thing. Everyone of my friends and family that watched it were like, we didn't realize that. We didn't know that. Oh, okay, so it's not as bad. We're willing to talk about it now. And that's the thing. And all we're trying to do is just to get people talking about it. Because we know when people start talking about it, they just start to temper their opposition. We have seen the usual conspiracy theories that we're throwing money around and somehow we corrupted the journalists. I don't know where all this money comes from, but it would be fantastic if we got more of it because, <laughs> <laughs> like, it, seriously, like, we're backed by our individual supporters that's who that's who back us you know it's the people who it's the individuals out there that that donate and, and support us it's like you know i i just laugh sometimes they go you're a shill for the industry blah 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 and i'm like well, where are these shill checks because you know i'm getting none of them they must be lost in the mail or something i talk to people about this i find it interesting that for someone to have a positive view on nuclear in certain people's eyes, it can't be because they've arrived at that conclusion because they've done some research or talked to people or whatever. It's because they've been corrupted by some outside force. They can't fathom that actually this person's come to the contrary point of view to me. They have to be corrupted. There's, there has to be someone paying them. There has to be someone pulling their strings and that. It's like, no, no one pulls my strings. <laughs> it's just funny watching that commentary. But overall, hugely positive. And a lot of people are kind of going, actually, why aren't we talking about it? For sure. And I suppose that feeds into the the next part. I haven't read forward, which is... Well, yes, yes, yeah. it does. The EPBC Act, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which includes the Prohibition 140A, is up <laughs> for formal review this year. Is this a realistic chance to challenge the Prohibition? Every 10 years, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, um, the federal act that controls and regulates environmental um, impacts and that sort of stuff, protection, has a section there, which is Section 140A, which prohibits the use of nuclear power and reprocessing, enrichment and fuel fabrication. Every 10 years, it has to be reviewed. So there's an actual requirement in the legislation that says it has to be reviewed every 10 years and it was created in 1999 so the first review is in 2009 this year is coming up for review again and the whole thing is up for review and because 148 is part of that well 
it's a chance to actually go, hang on, this prohibition, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It doesn't flow in from everything else around it. It just basically is just pasted in there. Talk about the environmental benefits that nuclear can have. Low land impact. It's, it's low carbon attributes and it's energy density. It's a chance to actually put in a good submission and get a lot of people to support it and back it and say, hey, look, you need to look at repealing this because it's contrary to what we need to do. Um, we need to have this option open. And I have it on good authority that there are a lot of nuclear-based companies and organisations and vendors and that, that that look at Australia and go, it's a fantastic country. It's got a mature science and technology sector. It's got a really well-respected nuclear science sector in Ansto. It's got good radiation protection and management laws already existing with our Panzer. You already mine uranium there. You've had experience in the nuclear sector with the Australian Atomic Energy Commission back in the day. So why not? And I've had companies say like they would invest in Australia if the laws were overturned. So if people want to talk about job creation and economic development and advanced manufacturing, well, here you've got a whole sector saying we will come to Australia if it's allowed and we will show you, we will demonstrate to you how we can manage this how we can do this appropriately, how we can do this, manage it properly. So so basically, yes, the act, the act has to be reviewed. However, we do have an issue with there's likely going to be an election in May and there might be a change in government. So we'll see how that falls out. But, yeah, essentially it's the act has to be reviewed this year because it's another 10-year anniversary. So it's a chance for everyone who is favourable to say, look, you should remove this because there are all these benefits. Like if people internationally want to have input, it's like talk about in the States, you know, you have whole new like communities that are backed by these industries that are supportive and open and they see the benefits or there are other places in the world that are go, you know, we would like Australia to open up because we're top ranked in terms of non-proliferation. Every non-proliferation state that comes out says Australia is great in terms of safeguards and that sort of stuff. We're a well-respected nation in terms of our nuclear science thing. If there was a country to develop nuclear industries, so take the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission, their spent fuel repository proposal. You look at Australia and people will go, yeah, because they got high-ranking non-proliferation, so there's no safeguards issues. They have a well-respected and, and set-up regulator and, and nuclear science industry there already. And diplomatically, internationally, everyone, you know, seems to like us. You know, everyone, like, if you're an Australian, you go overseas, as soon as you open your mouth, everyone goes, oh, you're Australian, and they're happy. And, you know. It is absolutely true. It is true. Except, <laughs> there, are, you know, there is another saying. It's like sometimes you hear an Australian before you see them. And it's a no-brainer for, like, the industry. I asked vendors the exact question back in 2004. 14 when we did the first when we produced the first results of the uranium survey i said would you invest if you remove the prohibition everyone said yes one even offered money to do it like they said we would invest billions of dollars in australia tomorrow if you removed it there's a whole industry waiting on the doorstep that has demonstrated that it can be done properly and it can be managed safely and it can be done completely fine but we have these prohibitions in place so, pain, but it's you know, a bit if of a they're fly in the uh, in the uh, potato salad, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, then. So, anyone listening to this, then, who's interested, and say, "Yeah, I, I'm on board with what you're saying," 
what can someone do? So basically what someone can do is, is effectively, you know, go talk to your local member and say, actually, there are a lot of people that support this. There are a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, that are okay with you saying, let's consider, like, we're not saying, this is what some people confuse, we're not saying build a nuclear reactor here tomorrow. That's four or five steps down the track. That will be considered later. What we're saying is remove the prohibitions because it's okay to talk about nuclear. Signal to the world that Australia is open for business. Get them to come to demonstrate and explain how they can do it financially, economically, safely. If it doesn't stack up at the end of the day, it doesn't stack up, okay? But the problem is we don't know that step until we actually open up. We've said this a lot. We've heard this directly from nuclear companies is that I can't get my board to sign off on a business proposal for Australia because there's a prohibition. Why am I going to do a business proposal if it's banned already? There's no point. And so we will never truly know. We can do models and studies and demonstrate certain scenarios and conditions to show it could be done all this way or that way. But at the end of the day, until you get an actual company, finance banks, all that sort of stuff saying, yep, we can do it this way. It can be done for this amount of money. It's going to be this affordable. You know, we're going to manage it in this way. Here are your regulations, all this sort of stuff. We're not going to know that. We had the Umpner review. At the same time, there was a House of Representatives committee that looked into it. We've had the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Rule Commission. We've had all these bodies that all say the same thing is remove the prohibitions, open up and see what's there. Australia has always had that nearly their story with nuclear. We nearly had Jervis Bay. We nearly had the enrichment facility here in South Australia. We nearly had other reactor proposals, you know, all over the country. And you think if they had developed Jervis Bay or, and the reason they didn't develop it was because coal was cheaper. So we built a coal-fired power plant instead of a nuclear power plant. And you'd look at today in terms of emissions, well, we kind of wish we did build that nuclear power plant. You look at all the other proposals in the 1970s and 80s that got put forward in Australia for building nuclear power plants, would we have built Cogan Creek coal-fired power plant in Queensland if there was a nuclear power plant there built 20 years before? I did a back-of-the-envelope study on this, and I think I think I got to like 5.5 megatons per year or somewhere like that was attributable to coal-fired power plants that were built after a nuclear proposal was shelved. And so if, if people want to do something, it's first step is just contact your local member for a meeting. They're always going to meet constituents. It's their job. They have to meet with constituents. So sit down with them. Talk about how you are supportive of it and there's other people out there. Talk about, you know, the surveys and polls. Like those SACOM surveys, we actually asked the nuclear power question in the exact same manner as the uranium question. And while it wasn't as high as support, it wasn't majority opposed. Actually, it actually showed a stronger inverse relationship than the uranium one. It actually showed that it was like 48% support and like 30% opposition and the middle just didn't care. And when you looked at the community perceptions, it was drastically inverse. People thought 60% of the population was opposed and 20% was for or something like that. And so you explain that to politicians and show them, going, actually, it's not what you think it is. They might be more comfortable. They might be more comfortable going to their cabinet. So the, the cabinet would be the, the prime minister and, and then the ministers saying to them, actually, I'm fine with this. My constituency is fine with this. 
can we discuss it? We're not talking about building something tomorrow. We're actually talking about opening Australia up to the opportunity because we don't know what's there at the moment. People can contact their, their local ministers through you know, all the usual channels, writing a letter mm. or phone or, or meeting them. That information or the uh, information you had regarding the survey, is that available somewhere that people could reference? The easiest way to find those surveys would be to go to the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Rule Commission's website, which is still active. Go to the Issues Papers Submissions, I think it's in. And if you find SACOM's submission or the South Australian Chamber of Mines and Energy submission, it's actually an appendix to that submission that was written. So those surveys are there. Other surveys around you can find and attitudes and nuclear power in Australia studies, and I've got a bunch. And, and what we'll do with Bright New World is we'll, we'll start populating a little library of, of these sorts of papers and issues and things like that. Another source of great information is Generation Atomic. If you go to their website, they've got great infographics and great charts and, image and information. So if you want to go talk to your local member of parliament, because every state as well has senators, um, and go and speak to like your local senators as well and present this information, present the polling information and say, actually, people aren't as opposed as you think they are. They're actually okay with it. And, you know, I can guarantee it is that the first thing that will come out against it is, so we're going to put a nuclear power plant in your electorate. Guaranteed the first politician that pops their head above the parapet and says, yeah, I'm okay with nuclear. It's like, oh, okay, so you and that seat, you want to put a nuclear power plant in your district. That's what's going to happen. Case in point, John Barillaro. Yeah, exactly. This is what's going to happen if you stick your head out. It's okay to say, well, actually, we're not even considering a nuclear power plant yet. They could even say, I don't think it's going to stack up financially. That's what they could say. But I'm never going to know if it doesn't stack up financially if I don't open the door. So go and speak to your local member and say, it's okay to support you. It's not going to cost you your career. Even if you're a member of a political party, go to your local division and district meetings and say, can we talk about nuclear? It's, it's just having that conversation and getting these repealed because it's all... The EPBC Act is the main prohibition repeal, but the prohibition repeal also it originally existed in the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Act. That's where it came from. I wrote an article on this years ago when I looked into it because I wondered, I said, okay, we have these prohibitions, but where do they come from? And I only recently got the video footage of, of the Senate on that day and there was 10 people in the chamber. That was it. It was voted on voice vote alone. It was the Australian Senate has this thing where if formally when you vote on amendments and acts and legislation and motions and that, the eyes say I and the no say no. And for example, if there's more than two people that say no, they have a formal rule to say divide, which forces all the senators and parliament house to come back into the chamber and vote yes or no on an issue. And with the nuclear prohibition, it got put forward and they voted on it. And the Greens said yes. And the Democrats said yes. And it's, I'll point out for the reason the United States is a different Democrats to your Democrats because your Democrats is very similar to the moderate faction of our Liberal Party here in Australia and the Democrats here in Australia were more left than that. 
they voted yes to put the prohibition in and no one said no. I didn't hear a single no. So that meant that party that was in at the time, um, which was the coalition, which was the Liberal Party and the Nationals, they just let it go. They didn't want to oppose it. It just got through on a... I don't know on what the reason day. was. It was over lunchtime. That was, that was one thing. But I do wonder... I do wonder if, because, you know, this is politics and the Senate and they were doing GST, so the goods and services tax that's applied to everything, all the goods and services in Australia, 10% tax. I do wonder, to get the support for the GST, whether the governing party just... Yeah, exactly. I, I can't prove that. I don't know that. The only way to know that is actually to talk to the leaders of the Senate from the opposition and the government and say, when this was going through, did you guys horse trade? Maybe like getting a straight answer out of that. Yeah, or maybe they just thought, you know what, this is politically a bit, we can't come out in favour of it because we'll just get a tax. So, I don't know, it was, yeah, it got put through in a committee by the Greens. It got, it got supported by the Democrats and the Greens and then it just went through. Like when you look at the committee that preceded the amendment, the prohibition proposed, it wasn't as like it was just a day or two of meetings and it was Ansto, the local council that had Lucas Heights in it, um, our Australia's research reactor, and then the usual smattering of Australian anti-nuclear people and organisations. And I have to say there was some very interesting tidbits that came out of that committee hearing actually which is quite interesting but it effectively came in on a whimper and then you look at what's come after it in like 2006 and 2007 with the UMPNA review the yeah the royal commission the commonwealth parliament's house of representatives committee into it like the i've got it here with me the parliament committee document is how much is it 732 pages and it covers the full fuel cycle. And they met with heaps of people. This was a criticism of the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission wouldn't meet with anti-nuclear people. That's what, uh, that was a criticism. But this committee met with Helen Caldercott, all the people from the Australian Conservation Foundation, the people who are ant- like the, ant- the Friends of the Earth Australia, the anti-nuclear organisation. They met all those people. And they came to the conclusions that prohibition should be repealed and this should be a thing we should really seriously look at, particularly with climate change in mind. The Swatowski Review, same thing. The Royal Commission the Royal Commission did meet with anti-nuclear people. The thing people forget with the Royal Commission is the Royal Commission is like a Supreme Court. They have the same sort of rules and structure. And if you're a person giving a testimony to the Royal Commission, it's like you're giving a testimony under oath and your evidence has to be... They didn't enact it in this Royal Commission, but if they wanted to, if someone lied to them, like they gave them a piece of information which was a lie, they could have, like, summoned them. Wow. There are penalties if you give false and misleading information to a Royal Commission. There was that filter on the Royal Commission, so that's why a lot of the witnesses that gave evidence had to be someone who was qualified, that knew what they were, they were an expert in their field, and, you know, they knew what they are talking and all that sort of stuff, and they had, like, direct experience and, you know, basically, like, if you go for a job, you have to have the right qualifications and experience to get the role. 
So when you're presenting evidence, you have to have the right, like you have to be qualified. You have to be an expert in that area. So yeah, it's all these big, like the Royal Commission was tens of millions. You have these committees, you have all these papers that say, you know, we should do this. And yet I know I can't because I'm afraid of my lecturer's going to kick me for it. You know, I'm afraid the anti-nuclear people will rise up and, and force me into a particular position. I'm just like, well, we're not even saying build a plant. You know, we'd like to see a plant built. You know, that'd be nice. But we're not going to even get there if we don't know. And I've spoken to people who don't support nuclear, but they said, you know what, we would support the repeal. We're not going to support you building a plant, but we think it's stupid that there's a prohibition there. Because what other industry has that? What other industry in Australia, like actual power producing industry, has a piece of legislation that says you can't build this? People who oppose coal at the moment would love a piece of legislation like that for coal. You know, there's people who are opposed to wind turbines. They would love a piece of legislation like that. There's no other power producing industry in Australia that has an outright prohibition on an entire suite of technologies. Like there might be bans like for localities for like say like the you know the Franklin River Dam that started the Greens Party here in Australia basically. There's bans in place for particular areas and rightly so because they're environmentally sensitive and the damage would just be too significant. But they're not banned. These these things aren't banned. They're not because fundamentally of... banned based on what the technology is. Exactly, they're banned because it's env too environmentally damaging to go on that location. It's we're not going to allow that, like, because there's talk about stopping coal-fired power plant development now based on development grounds because of emissions. Now, that's not banning all coal power in the legislation. That's just saying we're not going to build that here in this location because of another reason. It's not outright banning entire suite of technology. There's heaps of other industries out there that are far more, like, in terms of the hazard and this is something that is probably another entire podcast on this stuff, actually, is hazard and risk. Nuclear is hazardous. An open operating reactor core will kill you. But the, ha the risk of that killing you is low because we have a reactor pressure vessel. It's in water. It's shielded. It's got concrete. It's got reinforced concrete. It's got more steel around it. You're not going to get in there. Chances are you're going to be shot by the site security well before you oh, get yeah, near yeah. the reactor. But yeah, but the thing is though, it's like there's a hazard. It's like chemicals. I see chemicals transported on trains and trucks that will kill you and that will severely injure you if you're exposed to them. But the way we risk manage them means the risk is low. And sometimes they do fall off the edge of a road somewhere. They do. No one's saying you, we can't transport these chemicals though. No, and it's like, you know, we ship thousands of medical isotope shipments all over Australia. And thousands abroad. of them. And abroad. There's been no incident that has seriously injured, I'm talking about radiologically here, seriously injured or killed someone. Like I said, this is a whole other field where you talk about a hazard, which is something that will hurt you and could kill you, to something that's what the risk of it is, and in the middle is a whole risk management. It's just an entire field in itself. But yeah. yeah, it's often been something that I, um, that I've discussed. It's like industry as a whole manages energies and substances that will kill or injure you 
if mm. left uncontrolled. That's anywhere exactly. in industry. But for the most part, there's regulations and rules and things that you have to follow. And, you know, I'm a supporter of regulation. It's one of the problems I have with the libertarian ideology is that um, the government yeah. should be small. It's just, no, if you... Yeah. There is roles for government to be there. But ultimately, these rules, these really regulations, they're in there for a reason. And mostly, industry manages these hazards and these substances safely. Yes, yeah. accidents happen, but, you know, we're not... The human race is infallible. There's always going to be to be risk, but for the most part, they're managed, and they're managed to very, very, very high, high qualities, and yeah. nuclear is no different. Exactly, and it's like, you know, it's, it's funny, it's like, the people who operate this stuff understand the hazard, that's why they build them in particular ways, and design them, and operate them in specific ways, it's, yeah, like I said, it's, and, and that, that whole assessment of hazard and risk that comes right back to what we started talking about with familiarization of risk and how people perceive and understand a hazard and its overall risk. And you often see when people treat the ha the risk in the same impact as a hazard, they're kind of not understanding all the intermediate steps that go to make, some, make the risk of something negligible. So there's a whole field of sociology on that whole stuff. Like there's, there's stuff talking about um, it's a new kind of field. It's like social amplification of risk. So if anyone's interested in this stuff, it's look into social amplification of risk. It's like, you know, there's a guy called Kasperson back in 1988 that kind of brought this theory up and it incorporates sociology and psychology and all sorts of other things um, to talk about how we take a hazard and come up with a risk that doesn't match the reality. So, yeah. But you're quite right. When you come back to... I mean, I've got a small anecdote. Um, I was talking to someone uh, about... Oh, they asked a question about Chernobyl and how that can happen. I sort of mm. explained what actually happened and how it all came mm. about. And their response was, well, does that mean you know, that can never happen again? And my response was, well, no one in the industry will ever say nothing can ever go wrong ever again. But... Yeah. You know, it comes back to risk management. Like, as soon as you say that something can never happen again, straight yeah. away something will happen. Murphy's Law. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. She was a nurse. She worked, you know, the night shift and whatnot. She says, yeah, I get what you're saying. You know, mm. you have night shift and you have expectations, but, you know, you have your systems in place, but you know something can possibly go wrong. It's a non-zero risk. Uh, and it was just something I noticed that this is someone completely out of the industry, but you had explained it to them, and mm. they were able to relate back to it in in their own lives through a you know a separate mm. industry. But, yeah. yeah, and we're talking about Chernobyl, they operated reactor that was reactor four that went. They operated reactors one and two for years after, and they're the same type. And they didn't have a type of explosion that reactor number four did. And Russia still operated those RMBK reactors at other sites until they decommissioned them years after and when you're talking about like i said hazard and risk you know there was a hazard there that it could blow like number four did but the other reactor units and the other facilities in other parts of russia they didn't do the same thing so the hazards there the hazard was always going to be there with that type of reactor but then you look at the risk of another chernobyl 
and you go, hang on, maybe there's something that's happened in between the two things, like the hazard and the risk, that has made the, the management and the operation that has made it effectively not, it's not going to happen again. So, you know, I wouldn't say absolutely it won't happen again, but... It's highly it, unlikely an accident would recur in the same exactly. manner that Chernobyl did. Well, you, a lot of people gave uh, George Monbois and Mark Linus and Barry Brook and all those guys a lot of flack after Fukushima because of they came out like George Monbois said, actually, I support nuclear power after this accident. And people go, how the hell? Like the person from Greenpeace effectively said that he said that how could you make that an argument for the industry? It's like Three Mile Island. The response to Three Mile Island was everyone was very scared and very afraid. Something like this happened for the first time in in, in the United States. And effectively, it, it didn't harm anyone. It was fully contained within the reactor pressure vessel, like the meltdown. It, Three Mile Island, I think, I can't remember which wreck, it was one or two that went, but... The other one operated for decades after. Every other nuclear power plant that type in the United States didn't have a similar meltdown. I think, and one of the things that not a lot of people know is the nuclear industry is very, very good at sharing information, information on incidents and capabilities as they happen. Like, it's similar to the aviation industry in a sense in terms of its, you know, like, it's, there's a similar sort of risk and hazard perception there like people were afraid to fly but flying is one of the most safest forms of transport yeah your you biggest know, risk is driving to and from the airport exactly and so like when when boeing one of their planes goes down somewhere in the world which is a tragedy the the local transportation safety board investigates it the ntsb the then the one from the united states will investigate it they will then issue an interim report if there's an immediate issue they've discovered that needs to be sent out to all other operators of that plane type, and they fix it. So the A380 that had the incident in Qantas, when that happened and they found the reason, every Rolls-Royce engine that had that problem was fixed. And has there been a single A380 that had an uncontained engine failure since? No, because they learn and adapt and it's safe. It's the same with nuclear, and it's one of the industries, few industries in the world. I've recently learned that dam operators, even if it's a tailings dam for a mine or if it's a hydroelectric dam, the same thing. They all share information on how they built, any issues they came across, and it all goes into like a big global body that can disseminate information. And that's something I think that's the trick of communicating stuff with nuclear is it's fixing that misperception between hazard and risk. It's a whole topic in itself, but it's, it's you know, essential to understanding not only people's perceptions of nuclear, but to then also how to communicate and talk to people and be open and honest about stuff. I, I was talking to people about transportation risks, and they go, well, there's a whole international body that's set up to do that, and Sandy Laboratories in the United States has input, and, and the laboratories in the UK have input, and they all share information and test data and all that sort of stuff. They all know what's going on, and it's a very finely tuned developed thing it's that difference between perception of risk and the actual like the hazard of it and 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 the, and the reality of it yeah the realistic risk from it so that's the kind of I, I see the crux of the issue for nuclear is how to effectively communicate that gulf between hazard and risk 
it's hard because we're talking about engineering topics that not a lot of people have literacy in. You talk about reactor pressure vessels and steam generators and negative void coefficients and people just the eyes gloss over yeah, and they're sorry, like, I sorry, I'm a carpenter or I, I do finance or something. Yeah. I don't need to know this. Well, it's actually interesting. Like when you say carpenter, the interesting thing is, and I've done this myself, I have a, a, a construction industry white card. So as a part of that, you have to learn about hazards and risks and how to report them and how to manage them. Because on a building site, there are things that will severely injure you if you do not respect them. And that whole thing, it has a great section in, all the, in, the, in the literature. You learn to do your tests and all that sort of stuff about hazard and risk. And it's funny, like I looked at it and I went, hang on, there's an entire group of people out there that would have had to sit through this, do the tests on this and learn about this that understand hazards, risk management principles and risk and reporting and management. They know it. And that's a whole big section of the general public. And it's things like with a, with a bright new world, it's understanding the people we're speaking to. Like I was saying before, if someone's anti-nuclear, they might just be that way because that's what they think they have to be like. Just give them the time and space. Anyone that's worked in the construction industry has this white card, knows hazards and risks. So you can talk on those terms and they would understand it. It's a big thing. And it's a big part of what we're what we're trying to do when going forward in Brighton World is how to effectively communicate issues that are complex in nature, but in a way that someone can understand it and familiarise it and be comfortable with it. For sure. You alluded to this before, that a couple of things are coming up for Bright New World. Are you able to yeah. sort of elaborate anything, any tidbits, what and when? Yeah, or- so basically... Um, I'm not sure when this podcast is going out. It could be before, it could be after. But we are yeah, on the cusp of a big part of the work we've been working on is looking at what we do and how we do it and how can we do it better. And so we are, I want to say refocus, but I think a lot of people might get nervous. We're still going to keep the same bright new world everyone loves. It's going to be the same organization. But what we're just doing is we're refocusing our kind of our policy objectives to make them more aligned with our core values, which is essentially plentiful energy for human development while maintaining environmental conservation and protection. But we're looking at it in a different aspect to kind of give us the ability to be able to proactively go out there and argue for the future that I think the vision that Ben set up and the future that we look at, I think, is something that a lot of people will like. A lot of people get put off by the you have sinned, now now you shall repent attitude of a lot of environmental organisations, like because you drive a big car, you're a bad person and now you must drive a small car. People don't respond too well to that because it's an attack on themselves. Absolutely. Uh, so we're coming out with a positive vision where we're open to talking to people, like I said, uh, and I've just we've just been working on making sure that's very clear, very concise, it's transparent. So if anyone goes, oh, you're doing this because of this reason, we'll know this is what we are. It's in our constitution. It's who we are. One of the big things is we're still going to talk about the nuclear issue. Repealing the prohibitions is a big key thing this year, and it's something we're going to be working on quite extensively then looking at 
things like business cases for development of energy in, in Australia. And uh, there's a couple of other things that we're going to look at doing and venture into. But I think our members will appreciate that and support those things as well. But essentially just kind of tightening up what Bright New World does, make it adaptable. So with a changing political climate, but also giving a clear framework so everyone understands who we are and what we do and how to support. And one of the big things I really want to do is I looked at our membership. We've got some fantastic people. Some of our members are experts in their own fields. They're really good people. And one thing I'd really love to do is to get them more in Bright New World's activities to, like Ben and I aren't experts in certain areas, but we have members that are and they're, they're brilliantly trained and qualified in those areas and it's tap saying, hey, tap into those people, get them to help, get them to, you know, like Ben and, and I get asked to do talks all the time, but sometimes it's hard to keep traveling interstate all the time and we might have a member in Sydney there to go, well, they want us to speak, but they want us to speak in this topic that you're quite well read and versed and, and qualified in, would you like to go and speak to them? And, you know, it's about Bright New World connecting those people together. That's what I'd like to see us do, not to go out there and say we're leading the way on whatever it is, but to go, no, to someone to turn around and say, actually, the reason why we're really successful in doing this piece of conservation work is because Bright New World helped us connect with the right people to achieve this great environmental outcome. And that's what I like to see Bright New World do because it is very crowded in the environmental NGO space. It is hard to carve out your own niche. But what we've seen, we've seen a lot of great people in our membership and people we deal with and meet at events and that sort of stuff that are doing great things. And that if it's like a project or uh, an energy technology or something or other that would make the world a bit, that would make the world better and then we also know the person that can facilitate that or commercialize it or whatever, we want them to bring them together and say, hey, look, you've got this great idea. You've got the capacity to make it into a, an actual real thing. Let's get together, work this out, and, and for Brighton World to be there to help. Like, like I said, get on the inside of companies, talk to people, ask them what they're doing, what they'd like to achieve. Like every company, every business, every industry has a sustainable development policy. They just do. They have them now. It's a thing they have to do. And like it's it, it's like it's like Brian, you're getting there, talking to people. No, it's genius. Oh, we know a company that wants to do this. You're really good at that. Bring them together. Like in the mining industry, we had this great example of, of environmental conservation. Mines, as a part of their environmental obligations, have to do an environmental offset. So the land they disturb, they have to offset it. And there's calculations and rules and money and all that sort of stuff that's set in legislation. There's an organisation out there, and they're a fantastic one. And they're one of the, they're one of the conservation groups that are like are doing fantastic work on the ground. It's the Nature Foundation here in South Australia. They take those offsets that the mining companies have to pay or do, and take them and grab an old disused station in outback South Australia, and they rehabilitate all the flora and fauna there. So it so the environmental benefit increases that they conserve the land. I've seen mining companies put money in and get companies that are conservation kind of organisations revegetate the part of the mining lease they're not ever going to use. Right. So and it sounds like 
that the mining company is actually able to contract out that responsibility to one of these uh, exactly. conservation groups. Exactly, and and they've done the amount of hectares they have conserved and done is amazing, and it's it's stuff like that. And you know, we've got a project here in South Australia; it's just started up. That's a fantastic thing to see. They're going to make the Southern York Peninsula, so it's the little peninsula in South Australia, looks like a foot. They're going to make the southern part of that, the foot part. They're going to they're going to put fences up and rehabilitate the floor and fauna there, so it it becomes like an arc. That's a fantastic idea. It's going to take a few years to get going, get set up and all that sort of stuff. That's great. But it's like if Bright New World can, you know, connect the right people, have like, you know, if I go like I said, if I talk to a company and they've got like a fund and they don't know what to do with it and we know conservation projects and organisations and that sort of stuff that are willing to, like they, they want to do really good work, well, here's Bright New World. We'll connect you two together. We'll bring those together. So it's like anyone's listening to this that's like, got conservation projects, energy projects, you know, human development projects that just don't know where to go or what to do, come speak to us. Because we might know the people that will enable that project to succeed. And that's what I'd like to see Bright New World do a lot in the future. Because it's like there's no point in us doing work that other people are already doing quite well. I see Bright New World's role is enabling those to make them better, brighter. So, like I said, a lot of exciting things coming up with Bright New World, and it's something, you know, as you can probably hear, that I'm really passionate about and that I can see where Bright New World can be a real good force for environmental protection as well as human development because the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can do both, and, we've, and we know how to do both, and that's a vision that I think a lot of people will love and get behind. Absolutely fascinating. Any suggestions for who I should invite to going fishing, up to three people? There's a great education um, officer at Ansto, Marion Jones. She's fantastic. She's really great, really enthusiastic about the work she does and that sort of stuff. I reckon she'd be a great person to talk to about those sorts of things. How do they communicate what they do at Ansto and, and, and what they do and what they show people and that sort of stuff. And I reckon a couple of other guests you should get, and I, and I might be able to help you out with this, is I, I reckon it'd be really interesting to talk to someone who actually is on the ground. It's like someone who's an environmental officer in a uranium mining company or a radiation protection officer, someone who actually is on the coalface, that actually does the work and has to live in those regulations and that life and does all those sorts of things. You know, there's a couple of great people that I could I could send to you and I can make great guests actually because, you know, add a bit more context because I'm a policy guy. I do the stuff from above and around. But these people are the ones that are out there doing the sampling. Exactly. Exactly. They're they're doing the sampling. They're doing the environmental assessments. They're doing the radiation readings. They know all the risk management principles. They're the ones that, like I said, fill in the gap in the middle between hazards and risks. They do this stuff. They're experts. You know, people go, oh, you know, they work in the uranium industry. Of course, they're going to say favorable things. They have their personal reputation and professional life that will be severely damaged if they start lying. Like, I don't think people understand that these people will not lie as these people perceive they will that they've got their personal professional reputations to keep and does no one any service by being devious like that these people are honest 
great people to speak to and they love their work and and they're experts at their work and that's the key thing. They're professionals and experts at what they do and they're the right people to speak to. So a couple of those people would be great to speak to. Sure, to, um, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll tee that up. Yeah, definitely. Very good. Alrighty then. Yeah. Dane Eckerman, thank you very much for appearing on Going Fishing. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on. I know it's been a... A bit of a long session, but uh, this could be a two-part one. I'm not sure. I think this might be a two-part. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, but you know, there's a lot we covered there today and and spoke about. But I hope people hear this and and hear the the kind of passion I have for Bright New World and that sort of stuff and come on board. You know, you can go to brightnewworld.org and and there's a support us section at the top. Click that, and you know, it can be as low as a monthly donation of five dollars a month. You know, it's it's you know it's like a dollar a week thereabouts so that's where we get our funding from that's who supports us individuals that's who we support and represent and we're very clear on our policy so um yeah so if everyone you know if they like what you hear from me and that sort of stuff jump on to brightnewworld.org and 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 give us some support and love and send me an email i'm always happy to answer people's questions and talk and that sort of stuff so yeah excellent thank you thank you This concludes Going Fishing's interview with Dane Eckerman. I thank Dane again for his time and look forward to what Bright New World will bring this year. The list of media referenced is in the description and once again I urge Australians interested in advancing nuclear in this country to get in touch with their ministers about repealing 140A from the EPCB Act. The One Click Politics page is still available for use and the link is in the description. Thank you for listening. Australia has the responsibility to do its part along with the rest of the world in addressing climate change. Although not a large nation or economy, our national neighbours look to Australia for leadership in many aspects. Clean energy and innovation into such technologies are of paramount importance, the most powerful of which we have outlawed. Running a developed nation requires reliable, cheap energy. Renewables are fine to a point, but the balance will be covered either by continuing with more coal power or finally embarking on a nuclear build program. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.